Second Samuel chapter 3, beginning at verse 28. And the context is that uh, Joab had just murdered Abner, and verse 28 says, Afterward, when David heard it, he said, My kingdom and I are guiltless before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. Let it rest on the head of Joab and on all his father's house, and let there never fail to be in the house of Joab one who has a discharge or is a leper, who leans on a staff or falls by the sword, or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had killed their brother Asahel at Gibeon in the battle. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes, gird yourselves with sackcloth, and mourn for Abner. And King David followed the coffin. So they buried Abner in Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. And the king sang a lament over Abner and said, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, nor your feet put into fetters. As a man falls before wicked men, so you fell. Then all the people wept over him again. And when all the people came to persuade David to eat food while it was still day, David took an oath, saying, God do so to me, and more also, if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. Now all the people took note of it, and it pleased them, since whatever the king did pleased all the people. For all the people in all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's intent to kill Abner, the son of Ner. Then the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I am weak today, though anointed king. And these men, the sons of Zeruiah, are too harsh for me. The Lord shall repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. Father, we thank you for this, your word. It is our desire to understand it and to live in terms of it. And that we want to live by every word that proceeds from your mouth. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This past week, I was reading some of the attacks and the defenses of Thomas Sowell and his new book, uh, America, uh, Dismantling America, and I was uh, amazed at some of the responses. Uh, there was uh, one poster on there who was arguing pretty vigorously in a number of posts that bureaucracy is an absolute essential of the modern state. You can't live with it. You can't live without it. Uh, but we should certainly not dismantle it because the modern state could not exist without it. Uh, others wanted to rein in government but felt helpless in doing so. Now, one person was absolutely dogmatic that things had gone too far and there was really nothing that we could do about it. Not a very helpful comment. Uh, I could appreciate his frustration, but definitely not his, uh, his um, paralysis. Here's what another person said. In response to Constantine... We, the people, will likely be unable to right this capsized ship because of a parasite host imbalance. Most of our nation's bureaucracy has become camouflaged parasites, and they are killing the few remaining hosts, we, the people. The current system is inverted so that we, the people, are bailing out the bureaucracy with more and more of our labors and money as they squander it at a faster pace than we can provide. This is like an epidemic pestilence found on both sides of the political gangway. 
I am pro-kingdom of God, although I am sometimes accused of being apolitical because I think both sides of the gangway or gangbang deceptively tickle the ears with different forms of conservative and liberal bait so that they can continue to feed upon us unto death. And again, I appreciate his frustrations. I like the parasite analogy. Uh, It was great, but the problem is he couldn't think of any medicine that could be used to deal with those parasites. I can think of several biblical things that can be done. Now, we may never be able to get rid in our lifetime of all of the political uh, parasites, but we can do some things that could help. But what amazed me in comment after comment on that that, uh, blog was the... The, the statements were seeking to, to, to almost kill any initiative and any faith. The overwhelming feeling that you got was that these people felt paralyzed and helpless. Well, in this chapter, David was certainly frustrated at the incredible power that Joab wielded behind the scenes. Two weeks ago, I mean, actually it was three weeks ago, but two sermons ago on this, we looked at the power politics that seemed impossible to change. But it did change. Uh, one sermon ago, we looked at the, uh, the conspiracies and the lies that seemed so impossible to overcome, but the conspiracies blew up in their face. They backfired on them. Our God, is, uh, His hand is not too short that it cannot save. He can do things that we think are impossible. And David knew this. He knew that nothing is impossible for God, and so he at least tried. He sought to do what he could, leaving the results in God's hands. In verses 17 through 21, we saw that David tried to get rid of Joab and replace him with Abner. The problem was Joab quickly killed Abner, so he was not able to do that. Joab had seized so much power that in verse 39, David told his closest associates, I am weak today, though anointed king, and these men, the sons of Zeruiah, are too harsh for me. So even though David did not have the power to implement God's law and to execute Joab, for his treason, his murder, his uh, unconstitutional grasping for power, David was not passive like so many people are today. He took it to the people, and he won their hearts to an extent that it actually hindered any further progress of Joab. He took it to the people. When David was misrepresented as having killed Abner, he took it to the people. He explained what the real position was. When he was not able to arrest Joab, and we're not told why he couldn't arrest him, maybe Joab's men came around him, surrounded him, Uh, but he took it to the people and he told the people that this person is absolutely unfit for office. Uh, He he, uh, uh, sought to bring God's word and show the heinousness of Joab's actions. And Ronald Reagan was just as effective in taking things to the people. And we're going to be seeing in this passage you people are not as powerless as you might think. But before we go through the verses and demonstrate that, I want to comment on a group of people today who criticize David and think that he was mean-spirited in verses 28 through 30. They believe Christians should never use harsh words, and for sure he should never pronounce curses upon uh, treasonous scoundrels. 
And uh, yet that is completely out of touch with so much of the Old Testament and the New Testament. You look at the book of Revelation and you look at Paul's uh, curses that he pronounces against uh, Alexander uh, the coppersmith. I think one of the biggest problems in America today is not the people who are outside the church. It's because there are so many spineless cowards of Christians within the church. We're never going to turn the world upside down like they did in the book of Acts uh, until the church begins to uh, change its character and get some character uh, from the Lord God. As one modern wag put it, the church has become a bunch of mild-mannered people teaching other mild-mannered people how to become more mild-mannered. They object to airing the dirty laundry of a Joab. They think that's not fair politics. But when a politician is guilty of promoting murder like Joab was, an abortion in all of its forms, is murder according to God's word, and he is guilty of unconstitutional treason like Joab was, I think it is wickedness for Christians to just hide it and ignore it and to not do all in their power to expose it and oppose it. And I don't think there is any better illustration of the wrongheadedness of the silence and the politeness of Christians in politics than the recent Sandusky uh, case. And because of the audience that we have, I'm not going to get into the specifics, but almost everyone recognizes that the silence and the, the uh, lack of action and the cover-ups, uh, that that was heinous, that was wickedness on the part of the officials at the, the university. And in the same way, silence over gross evils in our politicians implicates voters. So I do not criticize David for these words at all. Uh, David did what he could within his limits of power, and in doing that, he cleansed his hands of blood guilt. And that's exactly where he starts in verse 28. Afterward, Afterward, when David heard it, he said, My kingdom and I are guiltless before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. Now, even though David was not a witness to the murder himself, Uh, As soon as he found out what had happened, he made it public and he vigorously exposed Joab's guilt. Now, if the uh, officials at Penn State had done the same thing, they would not have been guilty of aiding and abetting the crime. But they all had the attitude that for the good of the school, we just need to be quiet about this. We shouldn't be talking about this. Now, I'm sure some of them felt really bad about what was going on, uh, but they salved their conscience like Paterno did by telling maybe one public official, and okay, that's his responsibility. But a lot of them didn't even do that. Uh, they they, they uh, figured that it wasn't their business. But all of them were at least guilty of failing to publicly expose the criminal conduct of that man. Now, I think almost everybody in America agrees with that assessment. They say, yes, they were guilty. That was a terrible thing to do. But they don't apply it to the rest of life. They don't apply it uh, to politics. They recognize that politics is a filthy, dirty business, but they say, hey, I'm not involved in politics, so I'm not guilty. And I'm not so sure that that is true. When voters defend a Republican candidate and cover over his evils and try to make him look better than he really is, but they go after the Democratic candidate, they're doing the same thing that that the officials at Penn State were doing. If we willingly defend a conspirator, an accessory in the vile crime of abortion, we defend a thief and a scoundrel, 
we are acting like Penn State. And it doesn't matter if the scoundrel that you are endorsing is much, much better than the other scoundrel. We're still responsible because we are supporting a scoundrel. Your votes have moral implications. Your silence has moral implications. If you speak harshly against the evils of an Obama in chapter 4, but you cover over the evils of a Romney in chapter 3, you are not guiltless. Now, some people feel that their hands are tied with respect to what our choices are in government, uh, presidential election, just like David's hands were kind of tied here. There wasn't much he could do. Uh, He had to live uh, with Joab. And even though I'm not sure that's a valid analogy, I'll go along with it in this sermon uh, just for the sake of the argument. Let's assume that's true. You have no choice but to work with Romney like David had no choice but to work with Joab. You still must expose Romney's evils just as clearly as you expose Obama's evils, or there is no parallel with David whatsoever. I mean, that's the heart of what I'm going to be talking about today. Whether you feel bound to vote for a candidate or not, we're not going to deal with that. At least be honest about the problems. Now, there is this tendency in politics to be blind to evils in our own party and use a magnifying glass with all of the evils in the other. Now, I was glad to see that the Republican uh, committee for the platform uh, introduced a no-exceptions position, pro-life position. That's a great uh, position that they take. I was a little disheartened that uh, Romney disagreed with that. And he said, no, there needs to be exceptions, like uh, for rape and, and for incest, But if you're going to vote for Romney, I would urge you to at least not cover up his horrible pro-abortion record. It is extremely well documented at ProLifeProfiles.com. How many babies died uh, under and were paid for by Romney Care under Romney's governorship? Even after his so-called conversion to a pro-life position, I think it was about three months after, uh, he appointed a radically pro-abortion judge, Matthew Nestor. Now, it's true, one year after his conversion, he vetoed some legislation that would expand the morning-after pill, so I give him credit for that, but then three months later, he reversed, and he supported the expansion of the uh, morning-after pill. Two whole years after his supposed conversion, Romney expanded access to abortion. He gave new rights to Planned Parenthood. Section 3, Chapter 6A of Romney Care Bill mandated that the commissioners be appointed one of the commissioners be appointed by Planned Parenthood. That's written right into the bill. And it gave no such right to the pro-life movement. Even as recently as last week, his campaign has issued statements that he believes that there are exceptions to the no-abortion position in the cases of rape and incest. I mean, that's the same thing as saying, well, it's okay to murder so long as uh, the the reasons are good enough. Uh, That's basically what it boils down to. And it would have been the same as Joab here, believing it was in the good interests of the nation as a whole to kill Abner. Some uh, Christians are painting Romney as if he is a constitutionalist. That is nonsense. Some people paint Romney as a free market advocate and, and, and Obama as a socialist. That is absolute nonsense. They are both fascist-style socialists. They are both scoundrels. Both of them uh, are. And... Uh, Even if you vote for Romney, and I think this passage could be used, and there's other passages to say, hey, my hands are tied, I don't have many uh, many choices on that, at least have the courage to say that there are evils there. David did what he could to keep him out of office in verses 17 through 21, and when his hands were tied in doing that, 
He told the public that Joab was unfit for office. Now, can there be differences of opinion on voting? Absolutely, yes. But let's not do a Penn State cover-up. Point B, take it to the public by telling the public what God thinks of all Joabs. The New American uh, Commentary points out that Joab's, I mean, David's curse in verse 29 is basically a summary of what the law of God says should happen to such people. He's just applying the Scripture. So David says, let it, and the it is referring to the blood guilt in the previous verse. And by the way, in the Hebrew, blood guilt is a synonym for murder, first-degree murder. Let it rest on the head of Joab and on all his father's house. Now, why does he include all Joab's father's house? It's because in verse 30, it wasn't just Joab who murdered, and Abishai was directly involved in that. And then verse 31 implies that there were other people who were with him. So even if they didn't directly use the knife, they were implicated uh, in the murder. So it says, Let it rest on the, house, on the head of Joab and in all his father's house, and let there never fail to be in the house of Joab one who has a discharge or is a leper, who leans on a staff or falls by the sword, or who lacks bread. Now keep in mind, this would have been shocking language even for that time. And the reason it would have been shocking language is most of the people were used to this as politics as normal. Uh, just imagine, you know, the changes that have happened in the last 47 years in America. It's, it's unbelievable. Things 47 years ago that would have been unthinkable are commonplace today. Nobody bats an eye at it. Well, it's been 47 years since Saul became uh, king. And so there is this time lapse. And they've gotten used to this as being politics as usual. But David refused to excuse Joab's sin simply because his actions were typical of the politicians of that time. He didn't measure Joab's actions by what was possible, by what was currently expedient, or what the nations around him thought of the actions. He measured Joab's sin by what God's Word said about it. And I think this is one of the biggest faults as people deal with politics, Christians deal with politics, they're not discussing the Scriptures. They give their own opinions. I was just reading somebody telling me, you're in sin if you do not vote for Romney. He gives me these seven reasons. Well, all seven reasons were just his opinions. They had nothing whatsoever to do with the Scripture. You can't call something sin unless the Bible calls it sin. And so we've got to get used to applying the Scripture in these areas. Now, I'll be the first to admit that the descriptions taken from God's Word here are rather tough. Joab thought he was doing something, probably, that were in the best interests of the country. There was revenge there as well, but David calls it murder. He calls it murder. Saying that Joab and Abishai are guilty of Abner's blood is clearly calling them murderers. Neighboring nations would not have called it murder. They would have called it political expediency or necessity. Uh, We cannot allow the culture to define our language. And so when we speak against abortion, we must not allow the abortionists to define the terms. We must not call them pro-choice. They are pro-murder. Okay, we, we, we shouldn't just speak of the baby as a fetus. That's a medical term, okay? But that is a child. That is a person that is being uh, killed. We must get our language from Scripture. God calls redistribution of wealth theft. 1 Kings 21 treats eminent domain as an abomination. So according to God's Word, Romney care was involved in both theft and murder. It's just clear-cut in the Scripture. And don't let you, uh, people tell, uh, tell you that Romney had no choice in that. Just read the specified footnoted actions and words of Romney at uh, ProLifeProfiles.com. Uh, 
Now back to our text, what David was doing was airing Joab's dirty laundry with rather strong, harsh language, and he was using exactly the kind of harsh language that Jesus used against politicians in Matthew 23. Read that chapter sometime. So David was airing the uh, the notoriously dirty laundry of a government official just like Jesus aired the notoriously dirty laundry of government officials in Matthew chapter 23. He was exposing it to the world. He was saying that Joab's actions were an abomination in the sight of God. And I believe if David were here in America today, he would go after not just the Obamas of this world, he would go after people on both sides, in the Republican camp and in the Democratic camp, and he would say, no, this, these people deserve God's curse upon them. They need to be replaced from office. Politicians who have perjured themselves on their oath to defend and uphold the Constitution should be treated as perjur- perjurers. And by the way, if a person commits perjury the moment he gets into office, swearing to uphold the Constitution and to defend it, you know he's going to right out of the chute be breaking that Constitution. Why would you trust his campaign promises? you know he's already going to break his most major promise when he takes his oath for office. Is our support of corrupt politicians any different from their support of each other? We get mad at them when they sell votes to each other. But what do we do? What do we do in our voting? There's really hypocrisy there. Those who steal money from taxpayers to fund pornographic art and other abominations should be called scoundrels. There's no reason to soften the rhetoric to make it more acceptable than God makes it. And whatever you think of Doug Giles, and he sometimes goes way overboard, in my opinion, but he's absolutely correct when he says, from a communication standpoint, the prophets, patriarchs, warriors, and wild men of Scripture were more like sandpaper than a wet wipe. Many of our biblical heroes, especially the MCs of the various main events, were holy satirists mental and spiritual heavyweights with a verbal whip that they didn't mind using. One of the chief signs of the church's abysmal condition is its refusal to call a spade a spade, in love, of course, both inside and outside the church. If, if we truly desire revival, reform, and a national renaissance, then get ready for the spiritual wrecking canes, cranes, that is, the prophets, to come in. When the prophets poked the pompous, when they mocked the haughty and religiously arrogant, when they wrecked havoc on stale religious and political symbolism, they were clearing the ground for fresh godly growth. I know it may seem ugly at times, but it can affect change. That is, if we understand it, cheer it on, and yield to it, especially when it's aimed at us. Now, I'll admit, he sometimes has more fun than he probably should have in in, in doing it. But when evils of the magnitude of Joab's murder and Penn State's cover-up are not excoriated, I think there is something wrong. And that brings up point C. The third way that David distanced himself from Joab's evil was to get angry at Joab and Abishai. If there's one thing that verses 28 through 39 are quite clear on, he was angry. He was furious. And I think it was a righteous anger. How can we not get angry over abortion. And there is not a lick of difference between abortion and uh, the murder of Abner, other than the fact that children are even more innocent and uh, it's a more heinous crime, but they're both murder. How can we not get angry when Congress hands the president unconstitutional powers of detention? They take away habeas corpus. How can we not get angry when they are still 
after so many years of smut coming out of the National Endowment for the Arts, we're still funding them. How can we not get angry at the iron triangle of bribery and graft that has been going on for a long, long time in B.C.? I liken the failure of politicians to get angry over the outrageous and the unconstitutional things that are being done. I liken that to the cover-up at Penn State. Those Penn State people not getting angry, not getting outraged at Sandusky's behavior the moment it was known. Politeness in such situations is wrong. Disagreement is not enough. Ephesians 4 commands us, be angry and do not sin, recognizing the danger of anger. But he says, be angry and do not sin. Where is the moral outrage that our nation has been taken over? It's a Marxist takeover. Uh, Where is the moral outrage in the church over millions of abortions? I believe David glorified God by publicly expressing his anger over Joab's actions. But what do Christians do when they see somebody in the Congress getting really angry? I watched a video a couple of weeks ago where a congressman, he was even throwing his papers, yelling at people because of the absolute corruption that was going on. And what do Christians do? They get embarrassed. You know, you can't do that in, in, in the public sphere. I think we point the finger in the wrong direction. Now, the fourth way that David distanced himself from Joab's guilt was by making it clear who the perps were in this outrage against God's law. Verse 30 says, So, and that's the implication from the previous verses, So, Joab and Abishai his brother killed Abner, because he had killed their brother Asahel at Gibeon in the battle. And as David goes on to talk in verse 31, what he does is he forces everyone to put on the signs of mourning to demonstrate that they are not gloating over this death and to do so by mourning. He was making a public challenge. Now, here's the question. Joab's got a lot of power. Why does he not just kill David? Why does he not just take over? I think there's three reasons, possibly four, as to why uh, there were hindrances. First, there were plenty of people in the army who still loved David. They would have stuck up for him. A second... The elders of verse 17 favored David. We've already seen that. Third, David had been so bold in going to the public that the public would probably have stood up for him. And there's probably a fourth reason in here. David is related to Joab. And if he killed this relative, it probably would not have gone well for Joab and his family. So what David is doing is he is playing one power base against another. It's called interposition. Now, we tend to think of interposition as a lower government magistrate doing nullification. That's one form of uh, interposition. But even the public can be involved in interposition. Via email and Internet, much good has been done by the quick responses of homeschoolers when the government has made major intrusions into their lives. In fact, there's been hundreds of thousands of emails on occasion that's just very quickly made uh, some of these tyrants uh, back off. And despite propaganda from the media, the Internet, I think, has been a wonderful way of galvanizing the public support in opposing tyrannical officials. And so like David, we can still take it to the public. And we need to be the kind of public that will make a difference when a David actually takes things to us. We must not let our, our Davids, you know, hang out to dry. I mean, hang, just leave them out there like, like Aiken. You know, he was, uh, he was turned on and, and just piled on by even conservatives. just boggles my mind. 
Achan's a PCA guy who's very, very decent, and I think we need to support our Davids. And that might even mean financial support, but certainly the Internet. Now let's quickly go through verses uh, 31 through 37. These really continue the theme of resistance to Joab, but I think they demonstrate Joab's not just a conniving politician. He's not just making sound bites. He was genuinely angry. He was genuinely mourning and sorrowful over what had happened. And verse 31, first of all, shows David demanding that everyone be outraged, that they mourn. And uh, by the way, if nobody had followed his lead here, he would have been, it would have been really embarrassing. But because everybody follows his lead, it really put uh, Joab into a humiliated silence. So beginning at verse 31, Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes, gird yourselves with sackcloth, and mourn for Abner. Now I'm sure that Joab is ticked off at David's rebuke, but there's not a whole lot that he can do. Uh, he, he, he had to put on a show that he was indeed mourning. Uh, regardless of the insincerity of Joab, David mourned. Verse 31, And King David followed the coffin, so they buried Abner in Hebron. And the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. Now, if we model sorrow to those who are around us, others may pick up this sense of grief that is there, but certainly God will be pleased with us. And I want to read you a scripture from Ezekiel 9, verse 4, that talks about this. Ezekiel 9, verse 4 says, The Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. Everyone in that nation was judged by God except for the people who mourned over the evils of that nation, who cried over the evils of that nation. That mourning shows a distancing of ourselves from those evils. So if we want to avoid judgment, we need to do everything that we can to distance ourselves from the evils that are being perpetrated in our nation. And mourning is one way of doing that. And the clear implication of Ezekiel 9, if you just read that whole chapter, is that the citizens themselves would be guilty. They would be guilty of the crimes of that nation if they did not mourn if they did not withdraw themselves from the evils of that nation. This is one of the duties of the church to point out the sins of our nation, just like Ezekiel and all of the prophets did, so that God's people will mourn and cry out to him over those. Some people say, don't preach on politics. Don't point out the sins of the nation. No, we must do that if we're to raise up a generation of sires and criers and mourners that God will listen to. And here, we, we read the, the scripture earlier of my people who are call, called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, turn from their wicked ways. God will hear. He doesn't say the whole land has to do it, but God's people need to be criers. They need to be mourners. Without mourning, we are much like the officials of Penn State who ignored what was going on until it was too late. Failure to grieve shows bad character. And so David takes it to the public, and he makes the public themselves responsible uh, if they do not mourn. And and brothers and sisters, we have had so clearly exposed before us over the last 40 or so years the evils in our nation that there is no excuse for us if we do not mourn. There's plenty out there to mourn over. So let's be a generation of mourners. Verses 33 through 34 show yet another way in which David completely bypassed Joab, went directly to the people, 
by way of a referendum of opinion. And the king sang a lament over Abner and said, Should Abner die as a fool dies? In other words, he didn't die in battle. He had been tricked. Your hands were not bound, nor your feet put into fetters. As a man falls before wicked men, so you fell. Then all the people wept over him again. Wow. If you were Joab, you'd be feeling pretty bad uh, right now. Maybe David was hoping he would step down from office. He refuses to do so. But some sugar-coated Christians think David has gone too far here. Let me tell you something. If David went too far here, then so did Ezekiel, so did Jeremiah, so did Amos, who excoriated not only the sins of their own nation's government officials, but they excoriated the sins of government officials and the nations all around them. It's all through the Scripture. And evangelicals say pastors shouldn't preach like this. No, we're modeled. We've been modeled this kind of preaching all throughout the Bible, including Matthew chapter 23. Now, it appears that this song was inspired, it was written, and it was intended to keep alive the memory of Joab's wrongs. It was a form of Facebooking back before we had computer, okay? What they did is they would see this song, and they would say, here's a song by David, and this person would memorize it and start singing it, and the next person would memorize it and start singing it. And so it kept alive the memory of this evil throughout the nation, And just as David used song and print, we should use song and print to distribute the message of corruption far and wide. Songs become memorized, and they can be used by the whole nation in the same way. We can make use of video, song, and print to expose the evil of our Joabs. Now, of course, to complain without backing it up with our own action is hypocrisy. And David showed that this was not simply a soundbite that he wanted the media to distribute. We've seen that kind of hypocrisy many times. Verses 35 through 36. And when all the people came to persuade David to eat food while it was still day, David took an oath saying, God do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. Now all the people took note of it and it pleased them since whatever the king did pleased all the people. So his words, his rebukes, his actions were in accord with God's law. And because of his steadfast character, the people liked him. Now, it's rare to find that kind of thing. But when people see real character, uh, they are impressed. I think this is one of the reasons why Ronald Reagan was so liked even by his enemies. You might not agree with everything that he he did, but he manifested uh, a character in his life. This is one of the reasons why Ron Paul uh, is so well-liked. And despite the fact that uh, the media vilifies him and tries to hide him under a bushel. There's a a strong group of people who love uh, what he is doing. Why? Because of his character. Uh, The people knew that the death of Abner truly bothered David. He wasn't just playing games. And as we've read, this use of a kind of referendum of public opinion saved the day for David. Verses 36 through 37. Now all the people took note of it, and it pleased them, since whatever the king did pleased all the people, for all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's intent to kill Abner, the son of Ner. Now the clear implication is if he had not taken it to the people, they might have assumed the opposite. They might have assumed David set the trap for Abner. David ordered Joab to kill him. So it was absolutely imperative that David do uh, what he did. But how can we take it to the people, take it to the public, if the Federal Communications Commission begins to control the Internet the way that they want to do? 
The Internet is the last bastion of free market news and commentary. It's our ultimate end run around the Joabs of today. And Joabs who control various branches of the government, they want to control the Internet because they don't like news that they can't slant in some way. I don't think the modern Joabs like the exposure they're getting on the Internet any more than the original Joab does. Now, there's a lot of slander out there on the Internet as well. But uh, the point is, we should not let them try to control the media or we're taking away this one check and balance that was set before uh, David. The power brokers today, they're frustrated that so many conservative news sites on the web do an end run around their officially sanctioned outlets. And I would urge you to do everything in your power to stop the federal attempts to control the Internet. Here's the weird thing. Evangelicals are one of the biggest movers to control the Internet. Because of our desire to stop pornography. It is evil, and we should stop it. I'm all for stopping the pornography, but what evangelicals are doing because of their trust in the government, they're saying, hey, you need to be monitoring. You need to be controlling uh, the, 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 the Internet, and that's not the biblical solution. The biblical solution would be to go after the real criminals who are the rapists, the adulterers, the pedophiles at the site where the pornography is being taken care of. No, the government doesn't want to go after the real criminals. They could shut things down almost overnight, at least American pornography. They know exactly where most of the pornography is being produced, but they don't want to control them. They want to control you. And so it's almost like they're playing a shell game. And uh, they're trying to get you to look in a different direction than where the real criminals are so that you'll say, yeah, 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 do control the Internet. It's just a wrong approach. It's too much statism. The, the need of our day is for us to be implementing biblical law, not giving more and more and more bureaucratic controls over every segment of, uh, of society. So not bureaucratic control, but true biblical law. Now, praise the Lord, they've had their setbacks. The FCC has kind of slapped their hands recently, but they keep pushing, they keep pushing to regulate Internet providers. And I think Christians need to see what the real issues are. The real issue is not the Internet. It's just a tool. The real issue is biblical laws not being implemented. We're going to suffer the consequences if it is not. The last thing that this passage points towards is the need to take protective action against the evils of a Joab. David had put Joab in his place verbally here, but if he didn't watch his P's and his Q's, Joab could try to control David just like Abner had been totally controlling Ishbosheth in the northern kingdom. Uh, it, it, it was a very real possibility. Now, Joab happens to be a relative somewhat loyal, but so was Abner and Ishbosheth. They were relatives. And so we'll see in upcoming chapters, Joab was not to be trusted, and David had tried to do the most effective thing possible to replace Joab with Abner. That didn't happen. By the way, in chapter 5, he's going to try once again to replace Joab, and that's going to be unsuccessful. So he tries uh, what he can do, but because um, uh, David was not successful here, he had to do some proactive protection of himself. You know, it's just like a president's. They have to do what they can to veto every unconstitutional law. A lot of them just say, oh, well, it's, it's going to get overridden. I'm not going to veto it. No, veto it, even if it does get overridden. You've got to do what you've you got to do and let uh, God uh, uh, deal with the results. 
So what did David do to protect himself? First of all, he surrounded himself with trusted men who could protect him. Verse 38. Then the king said to his servants. Now earlier, he talked about the servants of David and the servants of Joab. And you remember, Joab has gotten a lot of power and a lot of people on his side. So Joab's servants are not present. He's just talking to the people that he can really uh, trust at this point. And they may have been the Cherethites and the Pelethites, but networks of trusted people, I think, are very important to develop uh, when you're trying to stop the advances of a Joab. A number of such networks you can be a part of. Uh, I'm a part of a couple of networks that highlight solid local and national candidates in every state that we can send money to, that we can pray for, we can help get into office. Uh, There are networks for imprecatory prayer, networks for watchdog organizations. So we do need, as the people of God, to be better connected. Second, David made sure that his trusted men saw the real issue. Unfortunately, not all the networks I'm a part of see what the real issue is. Some of them are trying to put a Band-Aid on the cancer, and they're thinking, okay, we've, we've been involved, we've done our part. There is so much more than that that needs to be done. It wasn't for lack of cause that Joab was not executed. It was lack of power. But Americans aren't used to speaking of treason anymore. Uh, Verse 38 goes on to say, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? David was saying, look, this is not a trivial issue. I've already said it's murder. But Joab almost has undone the possibility of the reunification of this nation. His carelessness, his recklessness, his selfishness in this has almost sabotaged the whole process. This was a serious thing that he has done. Third, David makes clear that his government was not an ideal government. He said, and I am weak today, though anointed king. This was not only a challenge for them to be on guard against Joab, but it was also an admission that he had frustrations in his governing. And I think we need to have mercy upon politicians who are trying to make changes in Congress or in our Uh, unicameral or elsewhere. They're trying to make changes, but their hands are tied. We should not have the attitude, kick everybody out of office. You know, let's impose term limits. That's so short-sighted when you've got much deeper issues that we've looked at in the previous two sermons on um, power politics and and the conspiracies that go go behind the scenes. I don't think term limits is the way to, 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 to do things. What we should do is keep adding Davids to various positions of federal, state, and local office and then not be disillusioned when they're not going to be able to change things overnight. They're not going to be able to get rid of all the Joabs. We're going to probably be dealing with them for quite some time. So be patient with politicians who are indeed trying to make a change. Point D, David once again distanced himself from the policies of the sons of Zeruiah. And we've already talked about this uh, family problem in the past, so I'm not going to repeat that here. But this phrase keeps coming up as an expression that Abishai and Joab are trouble. They are unfit for office. This was the consistent position of David for the rest of his life, that these two men are unfit for office. Um, Let me give you just some examples. Chapter 16 of this book, David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? Chapter 19, verse 22, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should be adversaries to me today? The only time that David wavered on this issue, that they were unqualified for office, was when he was guilty of the sin of Bathsheba, and he gets Joab to help him kill his friend. 
Now, Joab has something to blackmail David with. Uh, it's just a horrible situation. We'll get to that uh, in, in, in the future. Point E, David's last action was to not allow his frustration to kill his faith. Even though it looks like justice is impossible right now, David said, the Lord shall repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. And God did. He had to wait till the time of Solomon. And the implication here is he was hoping to consolidate enough power to be able to deal with Joab. It was not to be. But um, in the meantime, things got pretty dicey between David and Joab. But David had faith that God would advance his justice in the earth. So in conclusion, let me say that if you're one of those people who has thrown up your hands in despair and has said, I'm too weak, uh, I can't do anything. I'm not even going to try to do anything. I would urge you to reconsider. Uh, there is a lot you can do. You can help the Davids in politics by being part of the process and spreading his message. And there are lower magistrates like those mentioned in verse 17. You can hold their feet to the fire. You can encourage them to resist federal tyranny. Um, it's their responsibility to engage in nullification. You can blog the truth. Can you imagine what a difference it would make if every hardcore biblicist would start blogging the truth and then others could share those blogs on their Facebook accounts and start spreading the message? Uh, that would elevate your Facebook account from being something very marginal to something incredibly useful, you know, discussing actually nation-changing uh, issues of importance. Uh, you can lend out books and videos and tracts. You can have bumper stickers. I mean, this passage really illustrates that you as the people are not as weak as you might think that you are. Public opinion does count, whether you're a minority or you're a majority. And lastly, I would call you to have faith that God can once again turn our nation upside down. I think we actually have a much greater basis for hope than David did. David had hope for change. But we've got even greater hope for change. Did God not say that of the increase of Christ's government and of peace, there would be no end? He did. Isaiah 9, verse 7. In fact, that same verse says it's the zeal of the Lord of hosts that's going to establish Christ's kingdom and advance his justice and truth. Uh, in Isaiah 42, he promises to bring forth justice and truth and that Jesus will never fail nor be discouraged. Now, being discouraged implies resistance, right? Right? But he's never going to be discouraged as he advances justice uh, in the earth. And he says the coastlands will wait for his law. Did not he promise the success of the gospel when he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it? He did. And ultimately, it is the gospel and the law that's going to be the basis for lasting change in our nation. Conservatism is a counterfeit idol in America and it is not glorifying uh, to God. As one blogger said this past week, moderation will not save America. We must return to God and to his word. And until America does so, we don't give up hope. We take our cues from David, and we begin to take the actions that, we, that, that, that are needed to bring our nation to bow its knees before King Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, even the difficult portions which parallel the difficult times that we live in. I pray that you would help us to value every word that you have given, to live by every word that you have given, and to not have a truncated worldview, but, Father, to have our view of everything in life 
conformed uh, to your scriptures. May our attitude be that every square inch of planet Earth has Christ's claims upon it. And Father, may we uh, seek to do what we can, even with our little strength. Our, your power is made great in our strength, our, in our weakness. And I pray we would experience your strength in our weakness as we seek to make a difference and to glorify your name in this world. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.